Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here, we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. Our guest for this podcast is author and energy consultant, Meredith Angwin. As a working chemist, Meredith headed projects that lowered pollution and increased reliability on the electric grid. Her work included pollution control for nitrogen oxides and gas-fired combustion turbines and corrosion control in geothermal and nuclear systems. She was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute, where she led projects in both renewables and nuclear energy. Over the past 10 years, she began to study and take part in grid oversight and governance. For four years, she served on the coordinating committee for the Consumer Liaison Group associated with the Independent System Operator of New England, her local grid operator. She teaches courses and presents workshops on the electric grid. As an advocate for nuclear energy, her previous major book was Campaigning for Clean Air, Strategies for Pro-Nuclear Advocacy. Meredith has also been a keynote or featured speaker at several nuclear events, including the Worldwide Nuclear Science Week in 2018. We are happy to have her on the podcast today to discuss her new book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid, which is an expose of the insider-ruled practices of the deregulated areas of the United States electric grid. The book is available on Amazon and Kindle. Understanding the intricacies of our electric grid is of critical importance, which is why I'm happy to welcome to the show Meredith Angwin. Meredith, thanks for coming on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So, Meredith, in your first uh, or in your most recent book, you described the grid as an angelic miracle. Can you briefly explain how the grid physically works and why you call it that? Well, it works, but basically, that there the the amount of uh, energy, electricity uh, produced by generators has to be in balance with the amount used by consumers all the time, in real time. It's not something that, you know, you can say, oh, that looks like we're going to have, uh, have some more need, some more demand for electricity. I'll, I'll call on a, a, 
power plant, it can get on the line in, in two minutes. But by two minutes, things are going wrong. So it's constantly, constantly in, in, in balance and things rarely go wrong. So it is like a miracle because everything is happening very quickly and in real time. And there's always what's called a balancing authority, which is a, a control room where they're constantly looking for how the grid is doing, whether the frequency is, is falling because there's too much demand and not enough generators. And, but it is always working. It's like some kind of a miracle when you look at how many people are using the grid simultaneously and how many hundreds of generators are on an average side grid. Uh, it's just it's just something quite amazing. And on top of that, the uh, the actual generators you, you you mentioned frequency, and this is the alternating current that uh, in the, the United States is the 60, 60 hertz. Is that right? Yes. And all of that needs to be synchronized across the entire grid and across all the generators putting power onto the grid, right? That's right. The current has to be synchronized, and uh, there are other things that are going on on the grid, but I don't want to go into too much. There's there's a kind of thing called VARS, which you can't see, but it's there, and uh, that has to be uh, properly taken care of also. And, and uh, of course, the voltage can't go... Uh, uh, up or down very much uh, because it would it would hurt other generators and it would hurt consumers' uh, appliances. So yeah, it's it's a very tightly managed system, and this tightly managed system includes all kinds of people and all kinds of generators and all kinds of people turning their computers and their their microwaves and their uh, big equipment on and off, it, and it still stays in balance. It is quite amazing that the balance is not just the power to demand, but also just the frequency and synchronization of, of, of such a complex and intricate system. Yes, yes, absolutely. I was going to say for the listeners, VARS, V-A-R, uh, means volt, ampere. Um, reactive. Reactive. It's just a... It, it, it's just a chem, uh, electrical engineering term. So right, and I'm sorry to even br bring it up. I just wanted. Oh, well, I only no bring, worries. I bring it up to to show people that the grid is even more complicated than uh, than it seems. That's all. I, you know, it's clear that uh, voltage and 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 frequency and and demand and and then there's also these other things going on that people don't usually think about. Yeah, and I, and I know you also mentioned in your book how how basically the grid is one of the biggest machines we've ever constructed. It's yeah, it's the biggest machine in the world. If you think about it, let's say there's a huge blackout like there were, you know, in what two thousand three or something. That's a big machine going down. Oh, yes, it's made up of many many machines, but basically that is like it was on and now it's off. That doesn't happen very often, thank heavens, due to the angelic miracle part. <laughs> right, true. right. So for those listening who do not know, there are two types of electricity markets, unregulated and regulated. Could you briefly explain the difference between those types of markets? Yes, those names are used all the time, regulated market, unregulated market. All markets are regulated, at least to some extent. Now, in a regulated market, which is the traditional kind, which is what's, uh, what's called uh, vertically integrated, there's a 
uh, electricity company. It owns, a ge- it owns generators. It owns transmission lines. It sends you the bill. In other words, it does it all. It, it, it's in charge of having enough generators around. It has, it's in charge of keeping your distribution lines in your neighborhood up, and it's in charge of billing. Okay, now in what's called the unregulated market, the companies that do the distribution are generally a different bunch of companies from the ones that own the generators. The generators are what's called merchant generators because that means that they sell their power, they sell their electricity to one of the distribution companies. So the distribution companies are buying and the generators are generating. Now, this is a, this is a bit complex because if you remember, we're, we're trying to keep everything with the angelic miracle going. So it turns out that the, the balancing authority that has, um, uh, keeps it together, that is, there's a control room, and they say, let's turn this one on and let's turn that one off because we've got this much need and we we need that much electricity, they end up working on a very complex set of rules that don't have a lot to do with the keeping the thing in balance. It has to do with being, quote, fair to the different generators who get paid when they're generating electricity. So if you had a generator and and it doesn't get called on very much, it isn't going to get paid very much. And so it becomes a very, uh, uh, so the rules get hammered out in very, in closed meetings, which most people who are actually buying electricity can't affect very much. Interesting. So in general, it's, one one does it all, and the other kind of divides it up between the generators and the transmission people and the final user. Yeah, and the the and the transmission and the distribution companies, because I, you know, this is a tremendously complex subject, and I know that I am always about to make some sort of horrible mistake. But the thing is that the transmission is often. Uh, uh, big lines, and it's it's maybe in multi states, and so transmission isn't always owned by one company in in the in the vertically integrated areas. Uh, but the trans, but the distribution, like the neighborhood in your neighborhood, you've got substations and stuff, and the generators are usually owned by one company. Got it. Um, uh, just one last thing. Um, so, th- um, for the unregulated, I'm sorry, for the regulated markets, you have what you would consider just a central utility that's uh, basically uh, kept in check by a public utilities commission, right? I think uh, a lot of people like are, are familiar with that, and right. basically a. Uh, a, un- a unregulated system uses these things called um, RTOs, or Regional Transmission Organizations, which is our next question. Right. That's what it uses. Now, originally, the regional transmission organizations were, ma- were set up because of two things. The first was, as I say, the transmission lines go uh, long distances between states. They may serve several local utilities, especially in an area 
where there are small utilities like elect uh, rural electric cooperatives. And the RTOs were supposed to keep things fair for all these utilities on the transmission lines. But the other reason the RTOs were set up is let's look at a, dis, uh, a utility and it, it has a couple of power plants, it has distribution lines and stuff, and uh, how does it get paid in the, uh, in the old vertically integrated rules? Well, it, it gets paid as, a, uh, it gets paid to make its money back on its investment. So if it invested in a power plant, it's going to be paid so that it can, you know, pay off that power plant, so that it can operate that power plant. And so there's a public utility commission that's going to be making decisions such as, yes, you do need more energy, you can build a power plant, yes, we think the, the price is reasonable, and uh, you're going to put it into uh, how much you charge the uh, ratepayers, or, or that is the consumers, and that's called putting it into the rate base. Well, the problem with all this is that every utility looked around and said, okay, we get a percentage profit on how much we put into the rate base. So the more we build and the more we spend, the more we make. This is good. Of course, people said, this isn't good for the consumers, and they wanted to reform it in some way. Unfortunately, the reforming way didn't work as well. The, the, uh, the areas where they still do that, let's put it in through the rate pace, uh, uh, <clears throat> regulated areas actually have uh, lower uh, uh, charges to the consumer than the, quote, deregulated areas. It sort of worked backwards. Okay. And uh, one one question about that uh, now is there a limit uh, time wise for um, how long a utility company can uh, collect a profit on the interest collected on the rate base? Um, say like forty years. Um, the answer is yes, and that causes some problems. Um, it but it causes some problems because if 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 uh, it's paid everything off, then it definitely has another perverse incentive to close that down and build something else so that it can uh, get uh, new payments, I mean, new interest. The thing is, though, that although this is uh, definitely the way it works, the Public Utilities Commission is supposed to be watching that. So, for example, the Public Utilities Commission should be able to say, no, that plant is still perfectly good. You can use it for another 20 years. We're not going to allow you to put quite as much into the rate base for this 20 years, but yes, you can put something in. I mean, in, in other words, nobody's making the Public Utilities Commission insist that that plant can't be paid for anymore uh, and shut it down. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of a give in the system in that sense. Okay, because that was one of the concerns is if the market regulations are set up to, uh, you know, benefit short-term generation assets, then potential long-term generation assets like a nuclear power plant would be placed at a disadvantage in, in that type of system. So it's good to know it's not as... Uh, well, wait a minute. We're sense. getting, we're getting, we're getting two things confused here. At least oh, okay. I am. I, I mean, maybe. Okay. Here's a regulated market. Here's this regulated market. 
uh, and uh, it, 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 has, it has utilities, and the PUC says to this utility, you can get a profit of this percent on the assets that you paid for, okay? And the question with that market is, well, when the asset is paid off, do they still get a profit or do they have right. an incentive to build something else? In general, they have an incentive to build something else, but a canny PUC won't allow that to happen every time a plant hits the 40-year limit and, uh, and, and will instead give them uh, a different rate of return for the existing plant, you see? Now, the other thing is in the deregulated markets, the uh, the the merchant plants, the um, plants that get um, what they cheerfully call out of market payments, that is subsidies, can uh, bid in at zero to the uh, auctions, and therefore they can just say, or they can bid in at minus cents. So a wind turbine, for example, can say, "I'll pay you a penny a kilowatt hour to take my power." Well. There's not a plant that can, a regular plant that can compete with that. Right. A regular plant that is trying to make money by selling kilowatts at a low cost because it's an efficient plant, it still can't compete with, I'll pay you to take my, uh, my kilowatt hour. So there, there are diff different problems, and a lot of the problems come from the subsidies to the in, that can completely distort the unregulated, uh, the, the uh, unregulated markets, which I tend to prefer to call the RTO markets, because uh, if you read about them, you'll see that the books of lists of rules, that is the tariffs for the RTO markets can be many times as long as the rules for the uh, regulated markets. So I, I tend, to tend to think of the RTO markets, the ones with the merchant generators and and the and the utilities uh, distribution utilities. I don't look at those markets and say, oh, they're not regulated. No, they're regulated, but their their regulations are 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 odd and 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 confusing and lengthy. Okay, so <laughs> to to summarize, uh, the RTOs are uh, different from vertically integrated utilities by whether they're uh, regulated or deregulated? Is, would that be a... Well, they're called, the RTOs are called deregulated, but it's not like there's no regulations attached right. to them. Okay, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> labeling. That's why I, I call the RTOs RTOs. I don't like to call them deregulated considering that there's more rules and more uh, FERC filings and more lawsuits uh, and, and than, than in the, the vertically integrated markets. Well, I'm not sure about the lawsuits really because I mean I don't really track lawsuits in the vertically integrated markets particularly. And, and so FERC is the <laughs> Federal Energy Regulatory Commission? F yes, it's the Federal Energy yeah. Regulatory Commission. And I should have said that, too. <laughs> you know, I try. I, I wrote the, my book, uh, uh, Shorting the Grid, uh, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. And um, I, I gave a very preliminary copy to a friend to read. And she said immediately, 
this book needs a glossary. And I said, you're right. And so I'm very proud that this book of mine has a 12-page glossary, and it needs it because there are so many acronyms in this business that it is almost impossible to to figure out what's going on. One of the, uh, my book is up, you know, you could buy it on Amazon. And one of the reviewers on Amazon, uh, well, one of the people who reviewed it, wrote something which I found very interesting. He said, you do understand that from the point, this is obviously not a, not a direct quote, you do understand that from the point of view of the, the groups participating in these markets, the complexity is a feature, not a bug, because people can't figure out what's going on. And oh, I'm I thought, sure, yeah. <laughs> that it is, it's a feature. That glossary is in its way a feature. And that glossary, I'm sure, is going to be very useful. Uh, and I'm reading your book right now, so I'm, I'm learning a lot from it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're reading it. I, I, that's why I wrote it, <laughs> <laughs> so people could read it. I, I talked to somebody else who has been studying on, on the grid for a book of his own, and he said to me, you know, the things that are in your book, I've not found in any other books. You know, so he's found a lot of other things in other books, like the history of how the rural cooperatives grew and, 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 and you know, uh, Tesla versus Edison and other a lot of things. But the things in my book are, I, I'm, I'm not being boastful. I'm just saying that they're not easy to find out. They, they just aren't. Not for a yeah. regular person. Well, thanks for being the one to kind of, navigate people through this, but uh, this is a little bit of review, but but just uh, to kind of back up a little bit. So RTOs, which are considered deregulated and market-based, are often full of troubles, and you go quite in detail about this in your book. Can you briefly explain some of the convolutions and challenges to these so-called market-based systems in RTOs? Yes, yes, that's a really good question. And let me start, for example, with uh, two examples. Uh, the first one is that um, in, uh, in late December, early January, 2017 to 2018, the Northeast was in a deep freeze. It was like minus 20 almost every night. It didn't get up above zero during the day. It was, it was in a deep freeze. And when that happens, the gas pipelines have to, they have to carry both gas. Well, they always have to carry both gas for people's houses and for um, the uh, uh, electric power plants that are gas-fired. Well, we have about 50% of our grid is gas-fired electric power plants. But during the deep freeze, um, the, uh, the gas-fired plants couldn't always get the gas they needed to make electricity. Well, our RTO had actually looked ahead and saw, seen this and, and ordered many of them, or didn't order them, that's a different topic, to store oil on site because they could use oil when they couldn't use gas. 
And that was great, but it was against the rules that RTOs have to operate under because RTOs are, not, are supposed to be fuel neutral. They're not supposed to preference one fuel over another. And so ever since then, FERC said, you got to drop this program. You got to drop this program where you're, you're paying for oil to be stored. Well, oil saved the grid. We were using 30%, 30% of our electricity came from oil firing during that deep freeze. So it wasn't like some trivial, like little change. So RTOs have, have been setting up, our RTO has been setting up rule after rule after rule to try to get gas-fired plants to store oil without actually saying store oil, because store oil means that they're not fuel neutral. So that's... So that, and, and when they say that, that would technically be violating the market principles of being neutral. That's right. So. It's violating the market uh, principles. And uh, then um, the other uh, e example I was going to give, which I, I think I've, I've given a little bit of before, is that uh, a wind turbine, for example, uh, let's say that the, the, uh, um, the grid operator has done a very careful projection of how much uh, electricity will be uh, needed the next day. And through the day ahead program, the grid operator has set up a bunch of power plants that are going to uh, supply that electricity and when they're going to come on and when they're going to not come on. And of course, the grid operator will be adjusting this in real time for exactly how much electricity is actually used and so forth and so on. Well, the, a, a wind turbine can suddenly get wind and say, hey, I'm coming on. I'm a, I, can, I can pay you to take my power. So the, a power plant that thought it was going to make power now isn't making power because the dispatch is supposed to be uh, what's called economic dispatch. We, we put the lowest price plants on first and pay, I'll pay you a penny to take my power penny per kilowatt hours, that's pretty low priced. I'll pay you to take it. You can't have other plants competing with that. And so you have these very confusing situations uh, on the grid uh, because the operator uh, is required to do economic dispatch. And uh, and so other plants are told to shut off and, and, and the, and, and, and the, uh, uh, even though they were paid the day before, and now, uh, you know, it's, it gets to be very complicated. But as I say, it's not really uh, necessary for it to be that complicated. You see, I mean, you could say you can't get on the grid unless you told us the day before. Or you could say, oh, you can get on the grid if, um, if we think it's going to really work for the other power plants who have already been paid and are already running. Uh, but the grid operator has limited ability to do these things. Yeah, I could see how that just adds a lot of chaos to the, not, not just to the grid physically from an energy, you know, supply and demand standpoint, but also the economic aspect of uh, sort of manipulating prices and uh, 
messing with the incentives on how much capacity to have ready or, or deliver um, yes. with, with negative pricing. Um, so in general, like it, it seems that these RTOs, they operate with a, a, a set of rules that um, end up sort of producing the grid that we're seeing now. And it seems that uh, the grid, at least in New England, is uh, dominated by uh, natural gas. Um, would you say that this is sort of a feature of how RTOs have developed? Well, it's partially a feature of low natural gas prices, let's be honest. And, and it's also a feature of the fact that nobody likes coal, okay? But it is also a feature of how uh, the, uh, the uh, RTO areas have developed. Because, for example, it, everything is so complicated on the grid. I'm so sorry to say it. But in our area... Uh, and in many areas, there's something called a capacity market as well as a kilowatt hour market. Right. So a kilowatt hour market means I put a kilowatt hour on the grid and I pay and I get paid for it. A capacity market is I'm ready to put a kilowatt hour on the grid and I want to be paid and I expect to be paid for the fact that I'm ready, willing and able to do so. And our grid has both a capacity market and a kilowatt hour market. Now, the gas-fired plants uh, get a very high proportion of their payments as uh, capacity payments, which means that they don't have to charge as much as they would otherwise for their kilowatt hour payments. So if you look at a nuclear plant, the nuclear plant is probably making 80% of its money by turning out lots and lots of kilowatt hours. And the gas plant is probably making 40%, 50% of its money in capacity payments. Now, which of those two plants do you think can undercut the other on the kilowatt hour market? The, the nuclear plant has to make its money on the kilowatt hour in the market, and the gas plant doesn't. So I feel that the gas-fired uh, uh the the RTO markets, they tend to be in, in a, a kind of what I call a, a, I call it a fatal trifecta. And what I mean by that is the states can require lots of renewables because the states aren't responsible for actually uh, the payments and how things get dispatched or anything like that. So the legislatures can vote in a lot of renewables and they pat themselves on the back and everybody tells them how foresighted they are and so forth. Now you've got a lot of renewables. Then you have um, gas-fired plants that have to back up the renewables because the renewables tend to stop when they stop. The sun goes down or the... the, the uh, the uh, uh, um, wind stops the, blowing or the wind stops blowing right so they stop at which point you need what's called a fast acting resource to come up to speed quickly and that's usually a gas plant so the gas plant gets paid for coming on right then but the gas plant doesn't have to be paid as much as it might be because it's getting all these capacity payments so now you've got uh, renewables and gas plants uh, dominating the grid. But then we've got this other problem. Remember in the winter, I said in the winter uh, in New England, the gas plants can't get all the gas they need. Well, that's New England winters, but it turns out that other 
other areas are sliding to the same thing because nobody wants to build a gas pipeline. So the gas plants can't. So here you've got a grid that becomes dominated by natural gas, and then you can't build pipelines. And so the, 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 that's two parts of the fatal trifecta. That is, the the the, the uh, gas has to be delivered just in time, and you can't build enough pipelines. The wind and the solar go on and off when they want to. And the third part is that many of these areas say, it's okay, we'll buy from our neighbors, we'll buy from Canada, we'll buy from, um, you know, a different neighbor. Well, when is the grid stressed? The grid is often most stressed in very bad weather, either hot weather in Texas or cold weather in New England. And guess what's happening to the neighbors during that weather? You share they, the same weather. They have the same weather. They're not in a position to suddenly be sending your grid a lot of power. And so, uh, you know, um, we're, here we are in New England, and we, we were close to rolling blackouts because we couldn't get enough electricity in the dead of winter. Meanwhile, California actually had rolling blackouts in the heat of summer for the same reason that they couldn't get electricity their their gas pipelines weren't enough the 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 uh the renewables are not dependable and their neighbors were having hot weather too how come natural gas gets these capacity payments more than other sources of power and and it, that seems like the the whole problem because they get those payments and then they can sell kilowatt hour for less and then they undercut everyone else so, like, like, why is natural gas given so much of a leg up? It doesn't actually have a leg up quite that way. It, what happens is that the for per, per megawatt installed, a natural gas plant doesn't get any more of a capacity payment than a nuclear plant does. The difference is that the nuclear plant is making a lot of kilowatt hours, and so it it doesn't depend on that uh, um, on that uh, uh, capacity payment. Well, the natural gas plant is by nature usually what's called load following. That is, it isn't on at night; it comes on when it needs to. So it makes far fewer kilowatt hours. So if the uh, its capacity payment matters a lot to its economics, while the capacity payment of the nuclear plant matters much less to its economics. I, you know, one of the things I hate about this whole subject is that it, it gets so complicated. I mean, if I went to a PUC meeting in a regulated area, I would know what they were talking about. Okay, I would absolutely know what they're talking about. They're talking about, should we build this plant? Should we retire this plant? Do we need a new transmission line, etc.? If you begin talking about what goes in the RTO areas, you have uh, capacity auctions, and then you find that the, you know, the renewable plants are undercutting the capacity payments for the existing gas plants. So they have a second level of auction for only renewables. I mean, it, and, and if you begin to try and explain this to someone, their head spin and you can't possibly explain 
how it's set up. Only the insiders. I mean, you can explain it. I wrote a book, but <laughs> it, it it it's not something that you can come and say, "I'm going to this meeting, by golly, and I want to stop that 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 gas plant from going in." I mean, everybody they might agree with you, might they might disagree with you, but they know what you're doing and they know what the meeting's about. If I said. I think that that whole Casper secondary auction thing in the uh, MOPR auctions in ISO New England capacity is just wrong. People will go like, "What are you talking uh, about?" Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Too many, too, too many acronyms. Um, exactly. Exactly. So interesting. So, so gas is selected for we we know that, and um, we also have another problem uh, with with these ISO areas when it comes to renewable energy and uh, renewable energy sources, especially the intermittent wind and solar intermittent, yes. meaning they come on and off whenever the gods will it to be, uh, they're undercutting baseload sources like nuclear and coal. I know we don't like coal and we're more pro-nuclear, uh, but why is this possible and why is this harming the grid? As in why them undercutting baseload with renewables seems like a terrible idea and why is that allowed to happen? Well, it's allowed to happen in the RTO areas for the simple reason that the RTO areas can't even insist that, that uh, gas-fired plants store oil. I mean, they're, they, they're supposedly they're managing the grid, the RTO is, but they have such limited uh, allowance for what they can do. I mean, it's just not, not, uh, not what they can do. So they end up undercutting because uh, let's say you've got a, a, a nuclear plant and it's buzzing along at night and it's doing fine. And then the wind springs up and a, uh, a wind turbine says, okay, I'll give you a penny, a penny per kilowatt hour to take my wind instead of that nuclear plant's output. Well, the grid operator is in a position where he's, he can hardly say, no, I can't take your win because it's economic dispatch. Now, at, now that I've said that, there's a whole bunch of people who actually work in control rooms and work at these places that are going to say, well, it's a little more complicated than that, Meredith. It depends mm -hmm. on where the, the wind is, 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 is actually, uh, the wind turbines are actually situated and whether there's room on the, on the uh, transmission lines for them. And it's more complicated than that. Yeah, it's more complicated, but when you get right down to it, that wind turbine can undercut the ability of the nuclear plant to stay online or at the very best undercut its ability to make any money by, by getting the whole grid price down to like uh, zero cents per kilowatt hour. Right. But the reason why they're able to do that, and you mentioned this in your book, is uh, the renewable projects like we did solar get a lot of outside funding so that they don't really have to rely on selling their kilowatts to make money so that they push the, you know, dirt cheap kilowatts that are like one cent, zero cents, or even negative one cents uh, in, in order to basically undercut the, the economic value of the base load. Um, is, that, yes. is that correct? That is completely, completely correct. And uh, in my book, I, I do say things like, you know, people say things like, uh, we don't need base load anymore. What they mean by that is, we can run our grid, or we hope to run our grid, uh, if you're a renewable advocate, on 
renewables that are going on and off when they want to, and uh, and um, uh, and gas plants that are ramping up and ramping down quickly to 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 fill in the gaps for the renewables. Uh, baseload plants keep making power very steadily, and it's sort of like uh, if if you have a, a interstate system. Imagine the interstate system is the, the power lines. And you say, oh, you know, we have we have uh, semis on the interstate. And they carry a lot of goods. And you say, somebody else would say, ha, semis. They can't accelerate. Ha, I know those guys. They're no good. They can't accelerate. <laughs> what we need is a series of sports cars to carry the goods. They are flexible. And that's kind of what's happening. They say, we, we, we don't need baseload. What we need is renewables. And then we need something flexible to back up the renewables. And guess what that usually is? Gas. It's always gas. Always. And these aren't the uh, combined cycle ones either. These are the single cycle ones that just aren't as energy efficient. And it's like yes, that's revving, true. revving up a car up and down will spill out a lot more you know, pollution than one that is running constantly. Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Now, I wanted to, before we get, uh, I wanted to talk about the two main sources for the renewables funding. Uh, and uh, they consist of, there are nationwide production tax credits of various kinds, where, for example, a wind turbine will get two cents or two and a half cents per kilowatt hour from uh, as a tax credit uh, when it puts wind on the grid. Now think about that term tax credit. Um, there's only some, only some groups can use a tax credit. If you're not very wealthy, uh, having a $100,000 credit against paying income taxes, so you'd have to pay $100,000 less income taxes, well, that really wouldn't do me any good. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but the thing is that, it, it, as you can imagine, it's better than profits for a profitable company. So that's why Warren Buffett says, if not for the tax advantages, I wouldn't build any wind turbines. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> it's really good for a very profitable company to be able to not pay its, its profit taxes because of the production tax credit. That's I why I say get rid of most of the subsidies and then see who wins. You know. Yeah, I agree with you. I the, agree with you. You had an interesting graph in your book on this issue too, where you showed the like percentages of of uh, income streams for different types of generation assets, and like nuclear was almost all of it was you know selling kilowatt hours, and then gas it was selling kilowatt hours and capacity, and then you had this new category for renewables, the solar and winds, where it looked like a pretty big chunk of their revenue is just, uh, you know, these, these tax credits you're talking about. Well, it's tax credit, and I'm sorry, I didn't get to the RECs. Yeah, they the RECs. Sell, Let's talk can, about those. <laughs> yeah, I, they, um, tax credits plus renewable energy certificates. And uh, um, the, the renewable energy certificates go like this. So here's, here's uh, a, a, a legislature. And it says, 
we are really, really want renewable energy. So we are going to require that all our uh, distribution utilities buy 20% of their power, 30%, 40%, 50% from renewable energy. And the utilities say, okay. Well, are they actually planning to use 50% wind? No, no, no. What they're planning to do is buy a renewable energy certificate. So when that wind turbine makes a kilowatt hour of electricity, it makes something invisible too. It makes a renewable energy certificate for one kilowatt hour. And some distribution utility will buy that certificate and say, ha, huh, look at me, I am using renewable energy. And so part of the thing is that the renewable energy can be miles from where that uh, uh that certificate is sold. So you could have renewable energy made by a wind turbine in northern Maine, and the renewable energy certificate could be sold in Connecticut. It could be sold oh, many places. There, These things have very lengthy laws. And so some places used to buy renewable energy certificates out of states, and then they said, no, no, we've got to stop that. And then maybe they put it back. And, you know, it's... It, there are many, many people in this area who have full-time jobs tracing this kind of thing around. But what it boils down to is, I can say I'm renewable energy, and all it means is I bought a certificate from someone, and who knows what grid the renewable energy is actually on. Right. So, oh, sorry, I just going to ask a real question, uh, question uh, not a question, but make a, a statement, um, which is why, so if listeners have ever heard of Apple saying that they run on 100% renewable energy, it's completely false. They just tally up all the kilowatt hours they use and then buy these certificates to basically cover them. So they use dirty energy elsewhere, and then clean energy in another place is technically used. And you know, But on the grid, you don't know what electron comes from wind or solar right. or nuclear or coal. So it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind, of a, kind of a scam in my opinion. Well, it is. It is. You could say, well, it's not a scam because some renewable energy uh, producer gets the money from that certificate. On the other hand, it's tremendously misleading because Apple is going to go around and say, look, we run our whole company on renewable energy. Why can't you do that, too? No, they run their company on very reliable grid power, and they are profitable enough to buy lots of renewable energy certificates. And I remember one time I was in a, a restaurant. Uh, there is also a certificate market for um, uh, oh, yeah. well, the, in smaller places. And so uh, I, I, I was in a restaurant, it was a kind of upscale restaurant, and on the table it said, this res restaurant is run 100% on renewable electricity. And I thought, no, you're plugged into the grid. You're just a, you're just a high-end restaurant, and you're profitable enough to buy some wrecks. Fine by me. I mean, you can do it. But many of the diners are going to walk out of the restaurant and say, that was a great meal, a great ambiance, and I have no idea why not, why everyone isn't using renewable electricity. I just don't get yeah. it. Yeah, and this is also important because when you say, you know, a wind turbine kicks on and is, you know, selling one cent a kilowatt hour energy to the grid, it's not that that's the only revenue stream for the wind asset producers. It's they're collecting 
um, additional money outside of that. So yes. saying that wind is going on the grid for one cent a kilowatt hour, that can make it seem like wind is so cheap. Why don't we all just you know build more wind turbines? There's there's a much bigger uh, set of accounting to the, the whole story there. And uh, we're we're talking about like RECs just produce this um, you know massive uh, deficit in like understanding where the costs actually are with these energy systems. So would you know of or like have a suggestion for a better alternative? Well, um, gosh, I tend, I tend to think that the uh, vertically integrated wasn't a bad alternative. For one thing, it was local. You could show up at a PUC meeting and know what they were talking about. And also there was a kind of feedback mechanism because uh, if, if the legislators made rules that caused the prices on the grid to go too high, uh, that would be, uh, as you might say, noticeable. I mean, um, for example, uh, when 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 uh, California had rolling blackouts in two, in the year two thousand, uh, the governor of California. Uh, two thousand two thousand one. The governor of California. There was a petition. The petition was for a recall vote. There was a recall vote, and he was out on his ear. A great Davis. And so there's a kind of feedback mechanism if it's all in one area. When it's in the RTO, people say, say, well, you don't understand. We like to build wind turbines, and after all, they're the cheapest thing on the grid. They're zero cents per kilowatt hour, the cheapest. But they're not. Not if you count all their revenue streams. And externalities, too. Yes. That's right. Wait, um, I was just going to say, in your book, you mentioned... Uh, I was like a different type of wreck, but that include nuclear? What were those okay, called? There's a couple, well, let's put it this way. In the wreck world, wreck, there are all kinds of wrecks. For example, I heard a presentation on wrecks in New England at one point, and there turned out to be, I think, 16 different kinds, six of them being in Massachusetts. Uh, they, there were wrecks for solar that paid differently than older wrecks for solar. There were uh, solar, there were wrecks for wind turbines that were paid differently than solar wrecks. Okay, now one of the things that happened is faced with all this, the people who saw the nuclear plants being undercut by all these uh, energy, these uh, sources like solar and 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 wind which were being supported by wrecks, people said, oh, you know, nuclear could be supported by wrecks. Because after all, if you say, why are we using solar and wind? I mean, we're doing it to get away from fossil fuels, right? I mean, right. there may be some other reason, but most people would say, oh, solar and wind, they're great. They don't use any fossil fuels. Well, neither does nuclear. So what has happened is in some areas, nuclear has gotten things that are usually called ZECs, zero energy credits, as opposed to, I'm sorry, zero emission credits, right. as opposed to um, uh, RECs, which are renewable energy credits. So you've got your ZECs and your RECs. But I mean, as I, I, I understand what Phil is saying, can we get rid of all this stuff? But the thing is, as long as nobody's getting rid of the RECs, we sort of have to have ZECs too. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I, <laughs> well, well, I'd be okay with Zex because that that allows the value of baseload zero carbon electricity to still be, you know, considered. Right. Right. So, right. So, uh, so, 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 really quick in your book, 
uh, you draw a comparison between the 2008 economic crash, where the grid is heading under, uh, and where the grid is heading under the current model. Could you elaborate on this comparison and what consequences we may be seeing in the future? Well, I think I've, I've already spoken a little about the three, um, the way that the, in the current model, uh, where you can't even uh, supply oil to a gas plant without getting into trouble for not being fuel neutral, uh, we're going to the, the, the fatal trifecta of, of, of uh, just-in-time natural gas, uh, intermittent uh, renewables that go on and off when they want to, and hoping the neighbors will be nice to you. And so uh, I think where we're headed for is, uh, is rolling blackouts. And as I say, we were close to them ourselves in, in, in New England, and they're having them in California. So um, that is, that's what's happened. Now, the parallel with the economic crash is a little more, uh, uh, let me see if I, I, there's two parallels, really. The first is simple complexity. Nobody knew what the heck all those uh uh, consolidated debt obligations and, and other arcane and complex uh, financial uh, instruments were being dreamed up on Wall Street and sold to unsuspecting uh, investors. I really recommend the movie uh, The Big Short. I mean, the book great The movie. Big <laughs> Short is great, but the movie is terrific because you can just see somebody places a bet and then, you know, a whole host of people place, place a bet on the same thing, and yet somehow that has multiplied the money. Okay, so when I talk to you about how complicated it is to even talk about the grid and how complexity is a feature, not a bug, from the point of view of the people who are uh, uh, participating in the markets, uh, that is the par one parallel with the big short. The other parallel with the big short is the one kind of the kind of plants that can absolutely guarantee that they will make enough money are renewables that go on and off whenever they want to. They are the least reliable of the plants. And, you know, if there's anything you want from a grid, it is reliability. You yeah. really don't want long blackouts. You really don't want, you know, oh, it's off for a couple hours in the middle of the night. How can that matter? Well, if it's if it's uh, 10, 10 above out there and your furnace depends on, on, on some electricity to keep keep uh, the water circulating or the air blowing or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So again, in parallel with the big short, if you remember, they could lend money to people who really didn't have any possibility of repaying it. They, they were the, what they called liar loans and, and, and no documentation loans and all this stuff. And the reason they were doing that was to get as many, units that they could resell in these complicated financial markets. And to some extent, uh, all the things that pay the, um, the renewable uh, 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 energy, all kinds of complicated wrecks of different kinds and different tax credits, to some extent they're saying, your energy, which is unreliable, and which we only hope will be there for us when we want it uh, on a, a cold, still winter night. That's the best paid energy. That's the way to get rich. Don't just keep churning out kilowatts. And so, as I say, it's kind of both situations were on their heads. The liar loans, the renewables, the complicated uh, uh 
complicated rules on the grid, the complicated instruments, the complexity being a feature, not a bug. There, there are some parallels that I, I don't like. And I, I, I don't know. I'm, there's probably a bunch of people listening to this who are getting really mad at me. And I'm sorry about oh, that. Well, I, would, I was just going to say, like, this is kind of how, how, how I would put it. Um, the rules of the R, uh, RTOs and the complexity of that is pushing away from the baseload sources towards, you know, just-in-time gas and renewables. And the way I see it, it's basically undercutting your meat and potatoes for candy and vegetables. So uh, that's the way I would put it. Like, you know, you, you're undermining the, the, the bulk of your meal, and that could cause problems in, in, in the future with the grid. Like, it's this baseload stuff serious, and a lot of people just want to brush it aside. So that was just my comment. No, that's absolutely true. I, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I think that from my point of view, you, you know that um, when I started out in, in working in utilities, what I really wanted to do was work in renewables. And I did work in renewables for, for uh, quite a few years before I switched to nuclear. And so it, it's painful for me to be to be bashing renewables in any sense. But when you get right down to it, renewables that turn themselves on and off when they want to, with backed up by just-in-time natural gas and sometimes can't get all the natural gas, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. Especially if uh, natural gas prices somehow skyrocket. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was another wonderful thing about one of the presentations I saw. As he said, because of this, we have used up all our leeway for a rises in natural gas prices. They're not, you know, we we don't we will see that reflected in in bills very very quickly. And unfortunately, with the RTO method, you won't find uh, the equivalent of like well, we're going to have uh, Gray Davis out of here so fast his heads will spin because it isn't just one state and they can't it can't be changed that quickly it's all bureaucratized and all the rules have been set by FERC and people will just be like oh well the price seems to have gone up nothing we can do about it and it's not just price either it's the actual reliability of the grid right. one of one of the eye opening graphics in your book and i think you know every resident of new england should really see it was you, you were showing uh fuel reserves um day by day during that cold spell in New England. And it was just getting so low where if that cold spell lasted another two days or another three days, we would have completely run out. And that would have been absolutely disastrous. That, that could have, you know, had rolling blackouts in the middle of this really awful winter. And that, that, that could actually come at a human cost. So yeah, it could kill it, someone. It's really, it, yeah, this is really important subject matter. I agree with you. And I remember I was giving a presentation about that and somebody said, well, it, the, the power plant only has like, it looks like it has less than one day of reserve left. What happens if it goes on for another two days? I said, well, luckily it didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that happened back when we had Pilgrim operational. So, you know, I, I really hope we're ready for the next one with whatever we have on the grid now. I think yeah. we just have to clarify really quick. We, we, you, I don't think we actually said it by name, but you guys are talking about the new New England Independent 
Okay, uh, the, the, in, in, independent in, system operator for New England. That's right. ISO New England. That's and, the one you're talking about. Yeah, and and, yeah. and you can find ISO dash New England on the web, and they have actually they have a pretty good website where you can always see uh, what percentage of the power is coming from nuclear, what is uh, coming from uh, from natural gas and and from renewables, and and it's an excellent website. I recommend it. Uh, and they have some very nice presentations on it too. So, uh, you know, you I, I hate to say it, but people can't influence the RTOs very much. That's my my opinion, and I'm going to stick to it. But I, at least some of the RTOs, like ISO New England, do a, a, a very good job of inform, inf, providing information. That that's true. I've I've used their website myself, and I've tried to get information from other uh, um, ISO websites and New England's uh, one of the better ones in, in doing it that. It is. It and is. I, I, I'm lucky to live in uh, Colorado where we do not have an RTO. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Don't so, let them start one. <laughs> <laughs> so you cautiously tell the reader what you think is the best way to run an electric grid and point to Ontario's system. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit more about this vision? Well, the Ontario system is complicated, but I'm going to I'll try. It's, I mean, I wrote about it in the book, so I should be able to do this. But the thing is that the Ontario system was an RTO system, and it had uh, a lot of, uh, it overbuilt, like most RTO systems, it overbuilt renewables, and then the prices were going up. And it also closed down uh, coal because they decided they didn't want any more coal. But the thing is, it arranged things with what they call global energy, I forget what the whole thing is, global energy pricing, so that the, the basal plants, despite all this excitement, the basal plants, the nuclear basal plants were supported. And so our, after all the dust settled, because they'd overbuilt renewables, they really have higher prices than they need to have, but they don't have immensely high prices. And they have their nuclear plants, which are protected against the, uh, uh, the uh, wind turbines from undercutting them and, 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 uh, and, and, and bidding in at minus two cents per kilowatt hour on the grid and therefore forcing the nuclear plants to take like zero cents per kilowatt hour. The way that they, they, they Ontario has set, have set up, that doesn't happen. So the net result is they have a very solid zero emissions baseload situation, okay? And then uh, for above the baseload, they have a mixture of renewables, natural gas, and a lot of hydro. And yeah, so, so they have a really clean grid. It's nu nuclear and hydro, and uh, if, if you look at electricitymap.org uh, by the by the regions, like Ontario is always that deep green, meaning it's very low carbon, and uh, it's one of the cleanest grids in North America. It is, and it wouldn't be if they weren't simultaneously supporting their nuclear, so that they don't have to import a lot of natural gas, as as well as using hydro and 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 using uh, whatever renewables can fit into the scheme. Yeah, and and I believe you talked about how, you know, in places that are blessed with hydro resources, you know, basically you have the perfect energies for both 
uh, base load and load following. You can have your nuclear plants run steadily, f producing the minimum electricity you always need, and then have the hydro um, basically fill in the gaps in load follow. And it's like that's the perfect system to get to zero carbon and run an electric grid the right way, in my opinion. It is a very good system. I mean, I would say having uh, battled it out with, with people who uh, come to my talk and, and want to object to many parts of it, <laughs> that there probably is no perfect system, but it is pretty close to one. Uh, and, um, and one of the things about hydro is that your average hydro plant cannot run actual baseload. Uh, it cannot run 24-7. Now, there are some run-a-river plants that can, but most hydro plants can only run about, oh, 20 to 40% of the time because they have to wait for the pond to fill up behind the turbines. Yeah, there's two types of hydro. There's one that literally uses the, the river as it's running, and then there's some that use a reservoir up on top. Yeah, yeah. And, and so most of them tend to be the reservoir types. And, uh, and so using hydro for load following is great because it, it, um, it isn't that good except for the run of river ones for, for base load. So you've got your nuclear for base load and hydro is really happy to load follow. It's really, really good. It's a, it's a storage system too. It's, the store, it's basically pumped hydro. Um, but you just wait pumped hydro, can, pumped hydro can be storage. Not yeah. all hydro is, is, is set up to be pumped hydro. I, I guess I could say it, it's kind of a storage mechanism in that there's a reservoir of water storing power. That's nature, right. Nature does the pumping. Yeah, <laughs> nature does the pumping, right. Right. And it's not, it's not as just in time as a wind turbine is. It's, it's right there and you, you want it now, you have it now. You want it later, have it later instead. It's like turning off and off a spigot. That's all. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, what you cover in your book is quite complicated. And, uh, you know, as everyone <laughs> noticed, it's, it's a feature, not a bug. And uh, what can the average person do in both RTO and integrated utility areas, like here in Colorado, uh, to help push a grid in a more stable direction? Oh, well, that's a really good question. I think the thing is uh, value, reliability. If you start by valuing reliability, other things will, will be clearer about how the grid should be run. But you say, okay, well, I value reliability. How can I get the grid operators to value reliability? And that is indeed the question. If you are in a state that does not have an RTO, you can go to PUC meetings. You can write about uh, choices made uh, in PUCs. You can... Uh, public that, utility commissions. I'm sorry, that's right. I have gotten... Public utility commissions are state level. And so you have some uh, leverage because you live in the state and you elect people and... You buy the power that's uh, from a, uh, a utility that's in the state. And so you have some standing just showing up at a PUC meeting, writing a letter to the editor or whatever. So I would tend to say, don't be uh, value reliability when you go to PUC meetings, 
support continued operation of the nuclear plant. Don't be starry-eyed about, about how many renewables you can have because you're going to end up backing up those renewables with natural gas. That's what always happens. I, I shouldn't say it always happens. If you've got a lot of hydro, sometimes you can back it up with uh, hydro. But the thing is, renewables go on and off so quickly that you need something fast-acting, such as natural gas and hydro. So don't be starry-eyed about how you're going to get 100% renewables because you ate at a restaurant that said all the, all the electricity in this restaurant was uh, renewable electricity. And all they did was buy a bunch of wrecks. Yeah, Entire oh, townships just... have done that too. What? I... Entire townships do that too occasionally. You'll see an article saying like this town runs on 100% renewables. And oh, yes. They're just you know, in some corner of Texas where it's grid still dominated by gas. Right. Well, I was also going to say, like, I went to a PUC meeting uh, when a bunch of solar lobbyists and activists were basically uh, complaining that they were rethinking some of the, I think they were called feed-in tariffs. Yeah, uh, feed-in tariffs, right. Yeah, basically how much, like... uh, how much they have to pay for, for uh, solar. How much a, a utility has to pay for solar is usually called a feed-in tariff. And, and, they, and they buy it usually at a premium. And they were, oh, tremendous yeah, premium. Yeah, and, oh, my and gosh. They, and they were talking about like how like that's a, a bad idea. It's you know, anti-clean energy. And I, I, I went there and I was just like, you know, I am, not, I am for clean energy and I want things like nuclear, but this is a regressive... Uh, almost a regressive tax scheme because it's basically allowing people with solar to get paid a, 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 a premium while jacking up the ratepayer cost for everyone else. And yes. that's very unfair in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you on that. But, uh, but really quick, then you talk about, so it's easy to do stuff if you aren't in an RTO, but is there Anything you can do in an RTO area? Well, I, you know, I ended, I ended my book saying that you have to be kind of zen about it. You have to be aware of what the RTO is doing. There might be, um, what could you call, what do I call it? There might be a FERC ruling that could help you, in which case FERC is, uh, when they are about to put together a ruling, uh, they always announce it, and they say there's a 30-day public comment period. You can make public comments. Uh, so um, you can, uh, your RTO may have, many of the meetings connected with RTOs are closed to the public, uh, but the RTO may have an outreach group, like the one I was uh, one of the committee members in, uh, where they have open to the public meetings, go to them, and and ask questions. I mean, one of the people who reviewed uh, my book said, you, you're going to lose. They have their lawyers. They have well, uh, lots of lawyers. And, 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 and the, for example, in my utility, there's something called a uh, uh, participants committee, participants who have standing with the grid operator. And, uh, 16% of the votes are for end users, and the other 84% or something are uh, different people who make money from utilities. I mean, wow. so the, the, one of the people who reviewed my book said, 
that's very sweet of you, Meredith, but it's kind of starry-eyed. He didn't put it that way because he's nice. But he, he said they have, the, they have the lawyers and they're going to win. But my feeling is unless you pay attention, you won't even know that they're winning. And if you pay attention, then your legislatures can have some, uh, uh, some standing with them, some influence on them. So in an RTO area, all you can hope for is some influence. Gotcha. Wow, so this has all been very eye-opening. Um, was there any other insight you wanted to offer on the podcast while we're here? Oh, I think I'm sort of insighted out, but I do, <laughs> <laughs> I do this think this was a long one. <laughs> yeah, it was, and 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 the, uh, I I guess what I would say is that I I think people should should get beyond the very simplistic way the grid is usually presented, which is renewables are all good, uh, this uh, base load is this or base load is that, and really look at the how the whole thing fits together to make that angelic miracle and what it takes to keep that in place. Because in, in the RTO areas, it's be, the keeping the angelic miracle in place is being eroded. Yeah, it's got to look at the big picture. So in terms of where you can learn more about me, I'm, uh, my, uh, I have a website, which is oddly enough known as MeredithAngwin.com. <laughs> it's not hard to find. And, uh, and uh, then um, on that website, uh, you know, I post things. I also i am on Facebook as Meredith Angwin Author. And uh, I give talks. Uh, I go on podcasts. But uh, I think that uh, if you go onto the Meredith Angwin.com website, you can sign up for my newsletter. That, that's some help. And um, I guess that's, uh, that's all I can think of. I also... Yep buy the book shorting the grid i mean i hate to be yeah. so like buy the book yes. <laughs> buy the book buy shorting it. the grid because it's really hard to talk about these things when i i you can't look at a glossary you can't pick it up and put it down and say wow that was something we'll come back to it you see what i'm saying oh so, yeah yeah <laughs> and you also wrote the book campaigning for clean air don't don't forget yes. about that one yes uh, and yes. you are also the person that runs the blog for us, trying to save Vermont Yankee. May God I was rest. that person, yeah. but I, may, I don't run yeah. that blog anymore. Right. Well, may God rest Vermont Yankee's soul. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. I really appreciate you guys having me on your program. I appreciate it a great deal. Well, we appreciate you coming it's on. It's pleasure. That's our pleasure for sure. All right. Thank you. Well, okay. we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode interesting and informative. Shorting the Grid is available for print and Kindle at Amazon.com, where you can also find Meredith's previous book, Campaigning for Clean Air. To learn more, you can visit MeredithAngwin.com. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon 
Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you could email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Edited and produced by Jonah Adams.